If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the middle of the 19th chapter of the book of John. If you don't have a Bible with you, the black ESV Bibles in the pew in front of you can be borrowed to find John 19. We'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 16 and page 905. Last week we had, I think, what could best be called an incomplete sermon. It was a little disjointed, um, and I apologize for that. I should have have known better than to try and uh, change things up at the last minute, and I shouldn't have had need to do that. I should have recognized that I was, I had about an hour and a half's worth of material uh, about Wednesday, but I didn't really recognize that until about Saturday or Sunday, and by then it's kind of hard to put it back together. So uh, I apologize for the disjointed nature of that and for really having a sermon that didn't quite end, and we get kind of part two of that today. If you were to read through the passage that we have, which we will do here in a moment, and just kind of take it at its surface level, if you were somebody who had, had never read of the passion of Jesus Christ before his death and, and trial and crucifixion, and you had, had really no introduction into Christian theology, what you would read is a fairly flat, somewhat historical presentation of what happened to Jesus and the fact that he was betrayed by someone close to him. Uh, He said some sort of mystical things to his judges that they did not understand, and he was crucified and killed. Along the way, John seems to drop us some hints that there's more going on to the text than just that. So that sort of flat surface reading does not quite do what's what's happening beneath the surface justice. John points this out not so subtly by giving us some very obvious pointers, and those are where he looks at the things that are happening to Jesus, and he says very, very obviously, this has happened to fulfill Scripture. When you inspect what Scripture is actually being fulfilled there, you leave with a very clear picture of what John thinks Jesus has come to do. That is, that he is suffering, even as the King David suffered, but even with more reality. As, as David felt as though his suffering was indeed deep and painful and powerful, and indeed it was, Jesus knows that suffering all the more. The suffering for sin was real and true. And we know that it was for sin because he also points out that none of Jesus' bones were broken. And in that, he points directly at Passover passages where the lamb for Passover that allowed the people of God to escape the curse that was coming upon all of the land, none of that Passover lamb's limbs were to be broken. So Jesus is our Passover, that the blood of Jesus being applied to us allows the curse of Adam to pass over us. And even what's more, he suffers as God. Zechariah says they will look upon him whom they have pierced. In that passage of Zechariah, God makes it very clear that they will look upon me, upon him whom they have pierced. Our God suffers for our pain. Our God suffers for what we owed to him. These are the obvious pointers. When you start to see that there's obvious pointers, you begin to hear that there are some other pointers that are less obvious but nevertheless come through. We talked about last week that Jesus bears a cross, bears wood like Isaac bared wood to his own suffering and death. Jesus is accursed on the tree in our stead. He is counted as a criminal in our stead. That Unbeknownst to Pilate, he is fulfilling scripture by proclaiming Jesus Christ as king. And even Jesus' fulfilling of the fifth commandment shows how much he is endeared to doing the will of God, even in the midst of his suffering and pain. 
All of these illusions help us to see Jesus' sacrificial death again, his devotion to his Father's will, and the type of king he shows himself to be. Today we're going to finish by looking at more illusions from this text, but looking at them not just as illusions and reminiscent of one particular scripture, but how these themes run through scripture and capture so much of what scripture wishes and desires to tell us. The point of these things is simply to emphasize with repetition and hopefully explanation that Jesus is indeed the culmination and the revelation of God. That all of the Old Testament and its various parts and themes were meant to stand as arrows pointing to the reality of what Jesus would do. And that the Old Testament not only points to Jesus, but the Old Testament exists so that we might understand what it is that Jesus has actually done. Because of these truths, Jesus is the final culmination of everything that God wishes to have done in this world. Jesus is sufficient for all of our needs, our hopes, and our desires. And today, as we finish these things, let us turn then to the text of Scripture in John and begin reading in verse 16. They took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, At what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. 
After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of our God. I want to take you through five themes that we can find in this passage. The first one I'm going to mention somewhat in passing. I'll probably spend too much time here because there is more coming of this particular theme that we see. But I do want to draw your attention to it because I think that it's important to mention. And that is first the theme of women. The theme of women. It is worth noting here the importance that women play. These four women and other women play in the upcoming passages in which light they are depicted here. We might think that it's a small thing that John places four women at the foot of the cross here, but I don't think that it's a small thing. He only places one disciple there. The rest of the disciples have already been said to have scattered like sheep, and even the most brazen of them, Peter, has not only denied the Lord, but he is nowhere to be found. At no point after his denial is Jesus, or, or excuse me, is Peter seen in any part of the passage of the death of Jesus Christ. He who is so strong and he who is so valiant is nowhere to be seen. But the women are still here. Now it can be argued, and without looking it up, I'm sure that it has been argued, that one of the reasons why the women were here and the disciples weren't was because the disciples had a greater risk of being arrested, had a greater risk of of being imprisoned, and perhaps even a greater risk of being crucified with the Lord, being men. That might be true. But it's also true that it was clear for a very long time that the disciples were not objects of wrath of the Jewish leadership and, and Pilate didn't care about them at all. What is left is simply the fact that the women were here and the men were nowhere to be found except for John. The fact that the women are here, that their presence at the foot of the cross, that they are witnesses not only to the death but also to the resurrection of our Lord, places them at the very forefront of the work that has been left to the church. The work that is left to the church is nothing less than to witness to the death and the resurrection of the Lord. That is the work of the church. And here, and in every gospel, women are at the forefront of that. This is, by the way, a huge theme in Scripture a theme in scripture that many people miss for various and sundry reasons, and especially this time of year. We miss it this time of year because, frankly, there are people who make too much of Mary. There are people who lift Mary to an untenable position, a position that she cannot handle and that she should not have. And the ultimate response to that by too many is to drive away from the upholding of women that texts like this and texts like the birth narratives do. It's important And I don't know if you've ever considered this, but in all four Gospels, taken cumulatively, the one person who gets the most play in all four Gospels next to Jesus is Mary. It's Mary. It's not Peter. We know nothing of Peter's life. Really, we know of his interactions with Jesus. We know that he was a fisherman, but that's about it. 
But Luke gives us a huge amount of information about Mary. Matthew gives us a really good portion of information about Mary. Mary is indeed important. Go and read the Magnificat, that passage that that Chris read part of this morning. Read that and listen to the theology that is inherent in that. Mary knew what she was talking about. She wasn't just some ignorant virgin who happened to fall into the favor of the Lord. That is a rich theological text. She knew what she was doing. She knew what she was saying. Every step and every movement in redemptive history, every development in the history of salvation of God from the first to the last has involved a woman. Eve. Adam was created. And it's only when Adam is created and alone does God look and say, something's not good here. Man is not good on his own. So Eve was created to round him off, to help him, to complete him. And only when Eve is created is it very good. Yes, the redemption was given through Abraham. Abraham, it is your seed that will make all of the nations come before it. It is your seed that I will bless you through. But it's not Abraham's seed alone. It was never through Abraham alone. Ishmael was rejected. Abraham had other sons. They were rejected. It was only through Sarah. In Genesis 17, when God says, it is through Sarah, she is the one who will bear you a child. It's not through anyone. It's a particular woman. When the light is about to go out of Israel, when the priests have not been doing their job, and it's becoming dark even in the temple of the Lord, there is a woman, barren, yes, but devoted, who prays fervently to God, for a child. And it says very clearly, when that child is given to me, I will hand him back over to you. To Hannah, Samuel is born. Samuel, who will anoint David, who is only there because Ruth is clearly one of the great figures in the Old Testament, devoted to a woman who didn't want her to be devoted to her, devoted to a God that she did not know, giving her life over in wisdom to do what God wanted her to do. The book of the law is found in the temple in Josiah's reign. And Josiah and the high priest, the secretaries and the leading men have no idea what to do with it. So who do they go to? They go to Huldah. And Huldah, the prophetess, tells them precisely what they are to do. When our Lord comes, he is not manifested in the world outside of the birth of a woman. Even in the church age, standing behind many of the great people that we read about, many of the great men we read about are women who have supported them, who have helped them, who behind the scenes, who get no play in the world, doing the work of praying, of helping, of guiding and directing. Asked Augustine about his mom. The theme of women is prominent, and it's seen not only here, but it's seen in the, in the passages that are coming. But secondly, I want to talk about the theme of provision from this passage. The guards pierced the side of Jesus, seeing if he was indeed dead because they didn't have the opportunity to break his legs. And when they did so, blood and water come flowing out. It's a pretty likely medical phenomenon. A lot of doctors have looked into this and said, yeah, this would kind of happen with the amount of exertion that Jesus was going through. This is likely. One of those is normal for us to speak of when it comes to Jesus. His blood is a quite 
important sort of depiction and thing that we cling on to. Without blood, there is no remission of sins. And we have Ephesians 1, 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. So blood is incredibly important. We know why we might talk about blood coming from the wound of Jesus, but why water? Why water? Back in Exodus 17, the people have just come out of the Red Sea. In Exodus 14, the Red Sea is parted. The people of Israel go through it. The people of Egypt and the army of Egypt tries to go through it, and the Lord crushes them. And in Exodus 15, there is a great song of praise to God for the victory that he has given his people. In Exodus 16, the people immediately start to grumble, saying, Hey, we're in a wilderness, and now we don't have food. My goodness, back, back in Egypt, you remember back in Egypt, we had all these pots of food, pots of meat. Meat was everywhere, and now we've got nothing, Moses. God gives them, graciously gives them manna. In Exodus 17, the same sort of idea is repeating. Back in Egypt, we had water. Now in the desert, we have no water. In Exodus 17, 2 through 6, we read this. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you at the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, understanding that God has to keep his people alive, right? Because he needs to be truthful to his promises. The question is, Why did he give them water this way? He could have given them water in a number of different ways. Clearly, God is capable of bringing a great flood upon the whole earth. He could have made it rain in that part of the desert. He could have, like their sandals, just mysteriously and and powerfully kept them from being thirsty through their entire wilderness wanderings. But instead, he has Moses go up to a rock which is dead, which has no water and can provide no life, and from it comes life-giving water. Why does he do it that way? One would say simply to show them, and indeed to show us, that he can. That God provides life through death, because that is the nature of this world. If God is to provide life, it will always come through death, and God can provide life-giving water even through that which is dead. Throughout the Old Testament, God is continually pictured as a rock. Psalm 18, verses 2, 31, and 46, God is pictured as a rock. Psalms 31, 62, and 78 also picture God as a rock. And those are just the Psalms that picture him as a rock more than once. There are over 20 times in the book of Psalms alone where God is called upon and said to be the rock of Israel. Jesus was called the rock. His teaching Jesus claimed to be the rock. Build your house upon the rock. This rock in the wilderness, Paul looks back on in 1 Corinthians 10 and says, that rock, that was Jesus. 
And so Jesus is shown as being that rock. Although dead, he is struck. And being stricken, water pours forth for his people to be nourished so that they might never thirst again. This world is nothing but a desert and a wasteland, just as the people walking through the desert could not live in that desert. So we walking through this world have nothing in this world that can truly give us life. Yes, you can live your life. You can have your 80 years, your 90 years if you're lucky, but you will die. There is nothing here that will keep you alive. There is nothing here that will keep your heart beating. No amount of science, no amount of belief, no amount of anything would be able to save you from the end of your sin, which is death. Yet here, from this dead rock, from this dead body, pours forth life. John 7, 37 and 39, a passage that we have talked about some months ago, says this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When we hear that passage, we oftentimes think that the one who has the rivers of living water rushing up in them is us. And we think that way because that's basically what John has Jesus telling the woman at the well in John 4. Right? You would have asked me and I would have given you and water would have been springing up in you. But I think you can understand here that the water that gushes out is also water that comes from Jesus. It is water that comes from him. In his death, he allows the Spirit to come, for in his death is his glorification. And the Spirit, as it comes, is nothing but living water for us, which then dwells in us and makes a spring of water welling up into eternal life for us. The theme of provision flows from everything that God does for his people and ultimately is found in the death of Jesus Christ, which is a provision of us. It's provision so that we might not have to die. It is provision. It is a secondary sacrifice so that we would not have to be sacrificed ourselves. Thirdly, let's speak of the theme of paradise. In verse 41, the very end of our chapter, John notes that where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. I don't think it's for nothing that John mentions this. For narrative purposes, it would have been just as easy to simply mention that there was a cave there because all John really needs to do is make note of the fact that where Jesus was, there was a cave, and so that's where they buried him. Why did they bury him there? Because it was near. But John goes further than that, and he mentions that there is a garden. I think that it implies something rather important. Genesis 1 and 2, obviously. There was a garden that was made. They were in that garden with God. Adam and Eve dwelled and they walked and they talked with God. They were always present with God. And yet when they fell, they were removed from the garden. We don't have time to track all of it, but if you work through Genesis and you work very carefully through Genesis, you will see that the promised land is a picture of a renewal of that Eden. What's more, that when that 
promised land isn't quite going to be fulfilled as Eden. We have the tabernacle and the temple, which are themselves a renewed place of Eden. After all, the temple and the tabernacle is where humanity was to meet God. In Genesis 1, Adam was said to have cultivated and to keep the garden. The exact same words are used of the temple service of the priests where they are to cultivate, or excuse me, they are to serve and guard the temple and the tabernacle. Cherubim, mentioned at the end of Genesis 3, guarding the entrance back into the garden with a flaming sword, are not mentioned again in the passage of the Pentateuch up until Exodus, where they are mentioned again in Exodus 15, where they are set around the mercy seat where God himself will dwell. The mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, into which where anyone enters without permission, is struck dead. The temple is designed with a great number of flowers and pomegranates and palm trees, reminiscent of a garden. The end-time temple, which Ezekiel points out at the end of his prophetic book, has a river that runs through it. A river that is exactly the same kind of thing that we find not only in the Garden of Eden, but also promised to us at the end of the book of Revelation. God has always been looking to place his people back in the garden, to live with him in perfection. Isaiah 65, at the end of the book of Isaiah, he has this wonderful promise. Verses 17 through 19, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And now... In the death of Christ, we have his body laid in a tomb in nothing less than a garden. And in three days, from the dust of the earth, in a garden will come a man, indicating that there is now a new creation. There is now new life for the people of God. There is a newness given to us. Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. And friend, you and I are to follow. One day we will wake up with him forever to be in the presence of the Lord in a garden, beautiful and perfect, unassailed by sin and by death. Even as Jesus said to the criminal next to him in Luke 24, 43, today you will be with me in paradise. This is fulfilled by Jesus Christ, our Lord. Fourthly, I would point out to you the theme of the kingdom. The theme of the kingdom. John doesn't include all of the details from the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. It is not a complete compendium of everything that happened. Some details he includes that other gospels don't. For instance, he names Peter as the disciple who cuts the ear off, and he names Malchus as the one who has his ear cut off. I'm sure Peter was terribly excited uh, when he found out that John was going to do that. Joke's on Peter, though. Peter was probably dead by the time John wrote that, so he never knew. But in heaven, you can kind of see him looking down and saying, if it were up to me, you wouldn't get in, John. Uh, but there are also some things that he, inclu- he doesn't include that other people do include. For instance, Sir- Simon the Cyrene is not named in the Gospel of John as bearing the cross of Jesus. And John probably has reasons for doing this. The question becomes, why, why mention Nicodemus and why mention the spices that he brings in order to bury Jesus? In verse 39, we read, Nicodemus also who had earlier come to Jesus by night came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, 
about 75 pounds in weight. Now, for Nicodemus, there's, there's probably a good reason. I mean, Nicodemus has like a full character arc now in the Gospel of John. He comes at first in John chapter 3 to Jesus in the dark. And John even reminds us of the fact that he came to him at night, which in the book of John symbolizes that he came to him filled with, well, filled with unknowledge, filled with a lack of knowledge. He, he doesn't understand the things that are going on. He is deaf and dumb and blind. He's in the dark. One would even say that he is in sin. But there is a ray of hope because he is coming at night in darkness to the one who is the light. Later on in John chapter 7, at the very end of John chapter 7, we see Nicodemus reflecting some of that light back as he defends Jesus from the high council in the Sanhedrin saying, hey, shouldn't we give him a hearing before we condemn him? And here we have Nicodemus sort of coming around full turn. The fact that he was willing to spend this money, the fact that he was willing to help even with the body of Jesus shows that he was not on board with the Sanhedrin and the high priest's dedication of Jesus to death. That he was not okay with the fact that Jesus was put to death and that he seeks to honor him. And honor him he does. 75 pounds of spices is a lot. I mean, that's more than you can get at Costco. It was an unusual amount to be provided for someone, although it wasn't unknown. When we hear of this amount of spice being used for someone's death, every time we hear of it, it is always someone who is great and mighty. Now, it doesn't mean that they're always good, but it does mean that they were great. Herod, for instance, was buried with some... Well, during his funeral, they had 500 people bear spices for him. Certainly at least 80 pounds worth of spices. Gamaliel, who we've read about in the Gospel of John, had over 80 pounds of spices burned at his funeral. So it seems as though Jesus is being treated as someone of high import. One might even say like a king. And Psalm 45 is one of the greatest psalms in the Old Testament of all of the messianic psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, and Psalm 45 kind of stand out as the greatest of them. And in verses 6 through 9, we read this. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of a brightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of the kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes, the very same fragrances that Nicodemus is said to place upon Jesus. And again, when you read Psalm 45, it doesn't sound like that is a corn, or it doesn't sound like that is preparing the king for death. It sounds like it's preparing the king for adoration. Indeed, it speaks of the greatness of this coming king, his enduring rule. Hebrews tells us that this psalm is directly about the Son, Jesus Christ. His robes, being fragrant as they are, are fragranted at his coronation, and this is no less than his coronation. Jesus is the great high king that the Old Testament prophesied about. He is great David's greater son, come to set the world to rights. And no place in time is he greater in the kingdom than he is here. And this is an odd thing. It is upside down. 
This isn't what kings are supposed to look like. Everything is backwards here. His placard reads rightly, although the people want it to mock him that he is the king of the Jews. His honor in death is the honor of a king, and this is strange and upside down, but it's as it should be, because after all, this is what sin does to the world. Sin turns the world upside down. Sin treats God as though he is a creature, and it looks to creatures as though they are gods. So it is right that what the world sees is nothing but a pathetic death filled with shame and humiliation and a criminal's crucifixion. We see by faith victory, honor, glory, and nothing less than a coronation. I know that we've talked about this, but it is important to underscore. Even in John chapter 7 when it says he hadn't been glorified yet, Jesus' glory is not simply seen when he returns and he stands in front of us with a glory that will destroy those unbelievers and those who are wicked by its very presence. His glory is seen in the cross. His glory is seen in his death. His glory is seen in a body prepared with spices and aloes and myrrhs. That brings us to the fifth theme, which is the theme of victory. And speaking of things being upside down, to speak of victory here seems very, very backwards. All four Gospels take note of the fact that where Jesus was crucified was something called the place of the skull, or in Aramaic, Golgotha. Now, sometimes the Gospels want to note the places where these things happened because people lived in that time and they wanted to lend historical credence to what it was that happened in Jesus' lifetime. But it is an odd fact to say, well, in Aramaic, this is Golgotha. It's an odd fact. It seems to be screaming that that has some sort of bearing on what's going on here. And indeed, I think that it does. It's almost as though John is screaming, look at the Old Testament, friends. In the Old Testament, we have this word for skull mentioned twice. It comes at head injuries to two different people, one in the book of Judges and Elimelech, and then in 2 Kings 9 to Jezebel. It is a reminder of the head injuries that we were promised as the first statement of the gospel comes to us back in Genesis 3.15, where directly after the fall of man and woman, God looks at the serpent and tells him this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Ultimately, the Son of God will come to crush the head of the serpent. And as we track through Scripture, we find that those who stand against the people of God often find their end, and or it is prophesied that they will find their end in the crushing of skulls. This is how Goliath most famously was pictured, after all. Goliath dies of a head injury. And listen to how Goliath is being pictured in 1 Samuel. And there came from the enemy camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. Now I know 
for some reason, the ESV continues to use the shekel, and I know that you are all very familiar with the shekel. Okay. So basically, this is 125 pounds of mail that the man is carrying around on him. He's somewhere north of nine feet tall. The head of his javelin, the head of his spear, is no less than 16 pounds. You people don't even use that to bowl with, all right? And he uses it as a weapon. This is a monstrous man. Now picture him with a bronze helmet and mail and then armor on his legs. The picture is one of scales. He's protected like a dragon. And note also that he has a sword. The sword, after all, is what David cuts his head off with. But the sword is not what he uses when he goes out to battle. Instead, he uses something that pokes and pierces, that he lunges with and shoots out from himself, much like fangs. David, of course, takes him down. Five smooth stones. It only takes one. Sinks it into his head. Grabs the the man's sword and cuts off his head, crushing the head of the enemies. This fate was not just for mighty men of valor, men who went out to battle, but was for all those who might oppose God's rule. As the people of God are entering into the promised land, Moab stands against them, and Balak goes out of his way to hire Balaam to curse the people of God. Balaam three times turns that against him, and in Numbers 24, 17, Balaam prophesies this, a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Abimelech, in the book of Judges, who wickedly murders his brothers, just like Cain wickedly murders Abel, just like Satan, as a murderer from the beginning, is crushed with a stone, thrown, by the way, by a woman. In Isaiah 7, 8 through 9, the continual references to the head of Damascus and the head of Syria and the prophecy that they would be shattered seems to indicate this as well. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. That comes, by the way, in the midst of a promise that a virgin will bear a son. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, and then 12 and 13 says this, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. Many of the imprecatory psalms speak of the heads of the enemies of God's people being crushed. Psalm 68, verse 21. God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. Perhaps most famously, Jael. Again, a woman, has the armies of the Lord chasing Sisera into her very presence. 
She lays him down, covers him up, says she'll bring him milk, puts a tent peg to his head, and pushes it right into the ground. Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. And the author of Judges then helpfully adds at the end of that, so he died. Time and time again, God's people are said to have victory over their enemies by crushing their heads. Time and time again, God's people show that they gain victory by crushing the heads of their enemies, whether those enemies come from inside the Israelite camp or from outside the Israelite camp. It's not for nothing, then, we read this passage in Revelation 13. I saw a beast rising up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth were like, was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon, the dragon, gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as it followed the beast. Now, perhaps John just doesn't understand what the word mortal means. If it's mortal, you can't have it healed. Mortal means it doesn't heal. Mortal means that it is dead, that this beast has been killed. Its head has a mortal wound. Why does it have a mortal wound that is healed? Certainly at some level to mock Christ, but at another level because that's what we see in the entirety of the Old Testament. Head injury after head injury after head injury. Tent pegs going through temples and brains being crushed in by rocks. And yet they rise up again. There's another one coming up again. And there's another one coming up again. The armies of the Lord stand and fight. And they will take down the Philistines. They will take down the Moabites. They will take down the Romans. They can take down the enemies of the Lord. They can cut off all of their heads, but another is simply going to arise. The mortal wound is always healed because the temple, or excuse me, the the people of the Lord can never truly kill what they need to kill because the dragon is simply giving power to the beast. But they can't touch the dragon. They can play whack-a-mole all day, and they're never going to get to the one behind the power And Satan is perfectly fine allowing human rulers to come up and have their heads chopped off and have their heads beaten in order to simply keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. But Jesus does what David couldn't do. He does what Jael couldn't do. It is not for nothing that the imagery of Jael is incredibly powerful. Of all of the head injuries in Scripture, it is the one that stands out. And it's also the one that looks most like what is happening at the cross. You have the cross, which is nothing but a wooden pike shoved into a skull with Jesus victoriously on top of it. Jesus does what David couldn't do. He does what Jael couldn't do. He strikes at the very heart. He strikes at the very head of the one who always has held the people of God in oppression, the one who has always held death over them, and he destroys him. 
He faces the full brunt of Satan's attacks and proves himself valiant over them. His cross goes into the very skull of his enemies, and he has disarmed them, and he destroys them. Colossians 2, 13-15 says this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Our enemies are now weaponless, and Satan's head is crushed because our God is victorious over him. This time of year is one of celebration. We celebrate Jesus' coming. We do it because he has done immensely great things for us. But in the end, it can all be summarized in one word, three in English. It is finished. The promises of God are completed. The redemption that God has promised is completed. The victory is completed. The oppression of God's people is finished. Their enemies are finished. Their misery is finished. Friends, behold your God, who takes away your sin and your fear, who takes away death and sorrow, who takes away suffering and pain, who makes all things new through the blood of his cross. He forgives our sins. He defeats our enemies. Behold your God reigning from a tree, dying to give life, defeated to gain victory, crucified to give healing, stricken to crush the heads of our enemies. Christ has come into this fallen world to make all things new. We today have lit that rose-colored candle. It's one of joy. And we will be singing, joy is dawning. Indeed, joy has dawned for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Not because we have much work left to do, but because Jesus Christ has completed everything for us. Let us pray. Father, what great work Jesus Christ has done for us. How would such a story ever get boring? How deep are your depths and how mighty are your works? May praise, honor, glory, power, fame, wealth, might be ascribed to your name and to the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things for our good and for the glory of your name. Amen.